Hey everyone, my name's Scott and I'm a third year international study student and I have the privilege of reading the Bible for us tonight. So, yeah, Romans 1, 5 to 11, I'll give you guys 10 seconds to get it up. Therefore, since we, have been, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Can I add my uh, welcome to you who are graduates as well amongst us? It is so good to have you with us. So good that we like having you with us to share with us how it is that you are going and growing in Christ and the partnership that we enjoy in Christ and in this fellowship which is a self-sacrifice in conformity to the shared vision we have for the Uni Bible Group of proclaiming Jesus to present everyone in this world mature in him. And I know that you stand with us in this vision and mission. In fact, we, we enjoy having you so much that we wanted to put on a, a gathering at 5 o'clock for those of you who were able to get here at 5 o'clock. In fact, we had chips and biscuits and dip and, wait for it, olives. Leftover olives from Rob's 50th birthday party, but <laughs> olives nevertheless. And you could have had them if you came on time. <laughs> but there are better things in the new creation. <laughs> there are better things now, actually, but that's another story. <laughs> but we're here to enjoy and feed on the Word of God. So let's pray as we come together for this final night. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the enormous privilege it is to gather in your name and to do so on this final night of our mid-year conference together with our brothers and sisters who have graduated from this place, to look to you, to the hope that finds its foundation in the cross of Christ. And as we think about the life of faith this night, 
please, Father, help us to so think your thoughts after you. That we will grow in the likeness of your beloved Son. And Father, we pray this for his sake and glory. Amen. He is perhaps Australia's best-known theologian, Colin Buchanan. (laughs) He has written that song, the Shun song, that some of you know, that you looked at in your seminar, I think, today. Because Colin Buchanan has put so much of Scripture into easily remembered songs. Do you remember Arius last night? The guy who actually taught that Jesus was actually a creation, the first of a creation, but nevertheless had a beginning. He taught his heresies through well-known songs. Colin is the anti-Arius. He has put good theology to song. One of the verses that Colin has put to song is Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Have a look, please, with me to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It's a bit like John 3.16 in Paul's letters. That is, it's a well-known one, I think, or at least it should be well-known. And it covers so much of what we're going to look at tonight. In fact, I want to suggest to you that I want to look at this verse, not so much in its context within Galatians, but to understand the theology that lies behind this verse. In chapter 2, verse 20, we learn, Paul says... In verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Tonight we're looking at the life of faith. And the life of faith is the fruit of justification which you looked at in your seminar this afternoon, or rather this morning. And remember, justification refers to God's declaration that we have met his perfect standards as creator and judge. But of course, we don't meet his standards outside of Christ. We only meet his standards by having faith in Christ, by trusting in Jesus alone as our perfect representative, as our perfect substitute. And as such, some have rightly suggested that this can feel as if it's a legal fiction. That is, it's not really true. It it fits some legal requirements. It satisfies the legal requirement of the law because Jesus is fully God. He is fully man, as we looked at last night. But it still feels like a transaction that happens out there, as it were, outside of you and me. And so it feels like a legal fiction out there because I'm not really righteous and you're not really righteous. You know deep down inside that through the course of this day, even if you don't think that you fell short of his standards, you did. I know that for a fact. Hands up if you didn't think you sinned today. Okay, you can go home with right theology. Yeah, that's good. None of us can. 
can we? We know, we know that we've fallen short of his standards. So how is it that we can be declared right with God in Christ? It feels like it's out there. It's some kind of fiction, a legal fiction. Jesus is truly righteous, but I'm not. You're not. And yet somehow I'm declared righteous. How does that work? Well, come back now with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Verse 5. Romans chapter 6, verse 5. We touched on this on Tuesday night, but now we're going to go into this text with a little bit more depth. Chapter 6 of the book of Romans, verse 5. Again, the Apostle Paul writes, For if we have been united with him, that is Christ, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The Bible teaches that we are united to Jesus, united with him in a resurrection like his, and united with him in a death like his. The other term that is used is to be in Christ. Keep your finger in Romans 6, but just flip over very quickly to chapter 8, verse 1, to see that phrase. There is therefore, chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? In Christ Jesus. Most of us don't talk about our relationship with Jesus this way, do we? We don't go around if someone asks you, so how are you going as a Christian? You don't exactly say, well, I'm in Christ, do you? What do you say often? You often say that I follow Christ, he's my saviour. But do you realise that when the Bible describes being a Christian, being in Christ is the overwhelming way it describes us. Do you realise that? We seem to just read over those phrases very quickly, don't we? But united in Christ, being in Christ, portrays Christ well as a kind of place or location or a sphere or something. You see, if someone says, I follow Christ, I get that, or I'm saved by Christ, or I live under Christ, or I'm inspired by Christ, or I'm taught by Christ, well, that makes sense. Because then I think of Christ as my leader, or my saviour, or my ruler, or my teacher. But to say that I'm in Christ, that is, I'm in him as a person, in some, some place or location sounding, the concept is so radical that Paul says that we have been crucified with Christ. In that book that I plugged last night at Q&A, if you were here, it was called Forever One by Rory Shiner. It, it's a, a really terrific little book to get into this understanding of what it means to be united to Christ. And he uses this illustration of going to the airport and looking at a plane that's going to take off to go to Perth. And the question we need to ask is, what is my relationship to the plane if I want to go to Perth? It could be that I want to follow the plane. I see the plane take off and I run, 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 run after the plane. I kind of see how fast can I go and I'll get there as far as my little legs can go and that's why I'll follow the plane to Perth. Or I might think, oh, the plane is just wonderful. I'll go under the plane. I'll just stand under the plane because the plane is full of authority. And I'll stand under the plane. Or it may be that I'll look at the plane and watch it take off. And I thought, what an inspiring example that plane is. 
And one day I'm going to take off like that plane. But of course, the way to get to Perth is to be in the plane, isn't it? See, the question, did you get to Perth, is part of the larger question of, were you in the plane? Because if you were in the plane, whatever happens to the plane happens to you. Does that make sense? Now, I know it's a corny kind of example, but the same with Christ. Whatever happened to Jesus happened to us. He was crucified. So I was crucified with him. He rose from the dead. So I was raised with him because I, if I'm a Christian who's put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, am in Christ, united to Christ, safe and secure in Christ. This doctrine of union with Christ is really foundational to the understanding of how it is that the the effects and the fruit of the cross actually affect me because I'm united to Jesus. It's on this basis of this union with Christ that our sin and guilt is justly, the word is imputed to him, counted to him, and his righteousness is imputed or counted to us. And as such, we can receive all the benefits of his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection. See, it's no legal fiction it's real. It's internal, as it were, because of our union with Christ. Our sins really are transferred to him. His righteous status is really transferred to me and to you if you put your trust in Christ alone. So therefore, in Christ, I'm genuinely declared to be right with him. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And tonight we're exploring what this life of faith looks like. Remember, I've been crucified with Christ, says Paul. And I no longer live, but Jesus Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me. Gave himself for me. The love that we saw in all its wonder last night. So what does this life of faith look like? Well, before we explore the life of true faith, of faith alone in Christ Jesus, I want to explore the life of false faith for a moment. John Calvin, who's a famous theologian, the 16th century, once wrote that unfaithfulness was the root of the fall. Unfaithfulness was the root of the fall. I'm with Calvin. Because you see, everybody has faith because faith simply means trust or rely or depend on someone. Where we differ is what we have our faith in, the object of our faith. Unfaithfulness, as John Calvin speaks, is to have your faith in the wrong object. Where Christians have faith in the right object, namely in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us, unfaithful people 
have their faith in something or someone else or in themselves or something or someone other than the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And be warned, you become like the object that you have your faith in. If the God or gods you follow or put your faith in are violent, you will become violent. The Muslims who are part of ISIS believe that they are following a God, put their trust in a God who commands violence. And that's why they're violent. Whereas the Muslims who condemn ISIS put their trust in what they think is the God of peace. And so they speak of peace. Either way, they become like the God or indeed the prophet that they put their trust in. And so tonight I actually want to ask you, who or what do you genuinely put your trust in for your security? For your ultimate satisfaction? Who or what do you place your trust in for your security or your ultimate satisfaction? Are you putting your trust in finding the right marriage partner? Because that's where you think your security is going to lie, in having a good marriage. Oh, Christian, but that's really where the security lies. I think that's where I'm going to be secure if I find the perfect spouse. Well, if we all know that we're really not living righteous lives, even though we're declared righteous, you'll know there's no such thing as a perfect spouse. And even then, if there was the perfect spouse, they'll still disappoint you because they might pass away before you. So then who's going to be your security? And if you put your faith or trust in marriage in the future then you will find it hard to relate genuinely with others in this time. It'll affect your life. And perhaps you find your security in, in material things. It's that house that's going to make all things different for you. I know you don't think that now because you think that all you can afford is half a CD or something like that now. <laughs> Not that you buy CDs. I'm so last century, aren't I? I mean, you, you download stuff, yeah? But wait for it. One day, I was just talking to some of our dear graduates who live in the Southern Highlands, and they told me that's the, mouth, the most fourth expensive place in the universe to buy real estate. Can you believe it? Southern Highlands. So I'm not putting the Southern Highlands down in the slightest because that happens to be between Sydney and Canberra and all the wealthy people in Sydney and Canberra buy these wealthy houses. It's like the North Shore of the South Coast, as it were, <laughs> in the Highlands. But they all have these expensive houses, you know, and that's where I'm going to find my security in that house. And it's got to be the perfect house. It's got to have this and that and the other. Is that really where our security is going to lie? You're going to think, oh, that's not me, that's not me. You just wait. You start earning a bit of money. 
even if you have an arts degree, you'll earn money sometime. And then you get married, and then you, you want security for your family. When you have a child, you want security. You don't want any harm to come to your family. You want them to live the best way possible. I'll be a Christian. I'll sacrifice in some way. But, you know, I just want to make sure they're looked after. If that's where our security lies, and I'm going to put my faith in the prosperous, secure future, then in the end, we're going to be disappointed. And you're going to live in such a way that you become what you behold and you become greedy, wanting more out of this life. See, it's like any addiction. If you place your trust in a false god in the end, you'll become progressively enslaved to that god and become like that god. You know, I can even say the same thing about sex, couldn't I? If that's where our thought life and actions lie... Well, small wonder that pornography will inevitably shape it. If that's where we think we find our security. And, you know, I, I've had to speak into situations of adultery and sadly in recent times. And more often than not, it's got nothing to do with just pure libido. It's often got to do with some sense of security where the person thinks that the person that they end up having adultery with is the person who will provide some kind of security or status. And so sadly, I see it in ministry circles where more often than not, it, it's a guy who has some kind of ministry influence and it's a girl who likes that security of seeing that ministry influence and one thing leads to another because he's just not doing the right thing and making a million stupid decisions and she's also making a million stupid decisions and they find themselves in this awkward situation and they committed adultery. It's because their faith is in the wrong object, you see. It's that security that I think they'll find in the spouse or the home or the... You just list whatever it is. Where is your faith now? What have you put your trust in? The thing that determines whether a person's faith is true or false is not the sincerity of it, but the object that their faith is in. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Jesus Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What does faith in the Son of God look like? Romans 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, that's what we looked at this afternoon, right? we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Firstly, faith in the Son of God means enjoying an avalanche of blessings, an avalanche of blessings that we meet here in chapter 5. The first of those blessings being peace with God. Before we were justified, we were at war with God. 
deserving his righteous anger poured out upon us. I hope you've seen that over again through the week. But now, if we've been declared right with God because of Jesus, if we are in Christ, then we have peace with God. Not just a friendly truce, but harmony and relationship with God. Security with God. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Remember that from Tuesday night as well? What is the glory of God? It's the splendor of God, the magnificence of God, the radiance, the dignity of God. It is the godness of God. In one sense, the heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19. As you look at the creation, it shouts out. It's how wonderful creation is, how wonderful God is. And remember, we should be looking at creation and thinking, God made this for his beloved son. For his son is the one who displays God's glory supremely through his life and death and resurrection. But one day, one day in the future, we will see God's glory face to face. And I think the glory that is on view here is the future glory, the eschatological glory. That glory in the future, this hope that we will exult in is rejoicing in the glory of God the new creation where we will be transformed into this glory. But as we read on in verse 3, uh, this is the avalanche of blessings, peace and hope in the glory of God. Verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Here's the third blessing in the list. Rejoice in our sufferings. How do you rejoice in your sufferings? Our Christians will suffer due to hostility or tragedy. Anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, not might be, not maybe, but will be persecuted. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And that's why a gospel that offers therapy, a gospel that offers prosperity in the end is a false gospel. And it should be called out. If the gospel you hear is, oh, he will fill a hole in your heart. Or if you become a Christian, your life will be better off. Or God sent his son to die for you and sent his Holy Spirit to help you pass your exams. And the list goes on. He's there to help you to live life to the full. Well, they're half-truths. And half-truths are the devil's best weapon. I say it's a half-truth because there's a sense in which if God made us, he knows the best way to live and living his way is the best way. And living God's way really is the best way to live. But he never promises that you will always, always prosper in the sense of a healthy, wealthy life. He doesn't promise that you will avoid suffering. No, he promises suffering. Christians will suffer. 
And when we do, we will be tempted to give up on God. A therapeutic gospel, a prosperity gospel will make us give in because it's all about us. And I get disillusioned because if I believe that God's going to give me a prosperous life and I don't have the prosperous life, then in the end I'm going to become disillusioned that God hasn't kept his promises and I'm going to give up on Christianity. I can't tell you the number of people who I've met who have given up on Christianity because that's the promise that they get that they feel that God's failed them on. Now, if we know the true gospel that focuses on our saviour who suffered before going to glory, we can say no to the temptation to give up in the face of suffering. Indeed, our suffering will produce endurance, and endurance will produce character, and character in turn will produce hope in the glory of God. Paul Grimmond is currently a lecturer at Moore College, but he used to work with university students at New South Wales University for a number of years. He's written a book called Suffering Well. How many people write books on suffering well? But he's understood the gospel so much. And do you realise that most of the suffering that we have in the New Testament has got to do with persecution and trial? Not just going through tragedies, but persecution and hostility. If we know the true gospel... We need to know that suffering is inevitable. I think you've heard some stories. Those of you who went to the elective with Seth will hear of suffering just being a normal part of life. And being a Christian just inevitably involves suffering. It's going to involve hurt. I've just been involved in a conference in recent times and despite my best efforts to act in a way with integrity and honesty. I was still misrepresented in various ways and spoken of in ways that were just uh, plainly hurtful. Uh, but it just came with the territory of seeking to do the gospel thing. But it comes with tragedy as well. There is a local minister, former local minister in Wollongong, his name is Colin Grant, who went to, uh, was the minister of the Reformed Church in Wollongong. Now he's uh, relocated to Canberra. And we've just discovered that his wife has been recently diagnosed with motor neurone disease. If you know anything about motor neurone disease, it's where the nerves basically start to fail and the muscles start to atrophy. And so in the end, your body just starts to collapse and eventually your organs will start to collapse and you die. And I was in his home and in his lounge room. And just basically one week before the discovery, but they knew it was on the cards. Just weeping through the grief of knowing that this was a real possibility and it is now a reality. And all they could do was speak of the goodness of Christ. That heaven awaits his dear wife who is more than likely to die in a little while. And I know that there are some of you here who are in similar circumstances who know that this suffering is inevitable. And yet it produces endurance, doesn't it? It produces hope. Hope 
in the glory of God. Hope of knowing that wherever our loved ones go, it will be in a place that is better by far with our Lord Jesus Christ and with God himself and in the new creation. This is part of the blessings of God, part of the fruit of justification. To live a life of faith is to actually trust that this is what God has in store because we are in Christ and we know that our security is sure because of Jesus' death and resurrection that we share in. And furthermore, it goes on in verse 5, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Isn't that incredible? The reason for our certain hope is the love of God that's been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. But how does the Holy Spirit pour his love into our hearts? Because that's where our security lies. Knowing his love in our hearts. We're at Midyear Conference. We believe that the Bible is the supreme authority in all matters of life, faith and conduct. And there is no such thing as an infallible interpretation by a speaker, no matter who that is, including the Pope. So you're going to have a go at answering the question now with the person next to you. How do we know the love of God is poured out through the Holy Spirit into our hearts? How do we experience this love that is poured into our hearts? How does the Holy Spirit pour his love into our hearts? Talk with the person next to you for 30 seconds to a minute. Okay, I gave you a genuine 30 seconds there to uh, 45 seconds. So anybody on my left-hand side, any thoughts? How does the Holy Spirit pour his love into our hearts? Anybody want to have a go over here? Share with us. Okay, how about this side? (laughs) Anybody want to share with us? How does the Holy Spirit pour his love into our hearts? Okay, anybody want to have a go as to how you would find out the Holy Spirit pours his love into our hearts? The Bible. Yes. So who read on in the Bible to find out the answer? Hands up if you put read on. Good on you. Okay. Do you got any thoughts about when you read on in the Bible? Chapter 8. Yes. But let's stick to chapter 5 though. (laughs) Let's have a look at chapter 5 together. Chapter 5. Oh, no, just before we do that, 
let me ask this. You see, how will the Holy Spirit convict us of God's love? I wonder whether some people think it's through our singing. That's how we're convicted of God's love. Because as we sing, music has this way of arousing our emotions to feel love. Lovey-dovey even love. Yeah? So much so that we call singing worship in some churches. And in fact, they call the song leaders worship leaders. Why do you call song leaders worship leaders? Is the song leader the worship leader? Who is the worship leader? Jesus is the worship leader, isn't he? Why is the singing worship and the rest of the service not worship? It's because we think there's something special about the singing that brings you into the presence of God in such a way that your emotions are caught up with it. Oh, do be very careful, dear brothers and sisters. Emotions are wonderful, wonderful things, but they're wonderful servants. They are terrible masters. You must not be mastered by your emotions. Your emotions ought to serve the truths of God's word, the truths regarding his sleep. Because our emotions are really, really dependent on so many things, aren't they? Like what you ate, for example. You have the sticky date pudding and poof! The sugar level rises and gives you a heart attack the next day, doesn't it? <laughs> Likewise, your emotions can go up and down with how much sleep you had. If you're just going through a rough time at the moment, just go and have a sleep, a really good sleep, and come back and then talk to us and see how you feel then. So much of your energy levels, sugar or sleep, will affect your emotions. And it's not so much your emotions that are on view here. Paul goes on to explain the nature of love, doesn't he? He speaks about love. It's the first time he mentions the Holy Spirit, by the way, in the book of Romans. And he go on to verse 6 after he says, oh, let's read from verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For, because, verse 6, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Any hints now as to how the Holy Spirit might pour his love into our hearts? That is what God's Holy Spirit does, as it were, is to turn our attention to the blazing center of God's love. Where do you see God's love? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's there in the text, isn't it? And yet we want to go to these other places to say that the Holy Spirit does this to pour his love into our hearts. It's there in the text itself. The Holy Spirit turns my head to the death of Jesus. And just ponder on what that love is like. We did that last night, didn't we? But here it goes on to explain it in slightly different ways. It isn't just the act of one person dying for another, as incredible as that is. And we've, heard all, we've all heard of people doing just that, a soldier dying for a mate in war, or a parent dying for their child, or a husband dying for their wife. You'd hope that husbands are willing to do that, weren't you? I know of a couple, graduates from this university, they were on their honeymoon, they were snorkeling, and they saw a shark. And the husband decided to swim between his wife and the shark. At this point, you go, no, don't you? And I talked to him afterwards, and he said, it was a big shark. <laughs> but you're willing to do that, aren't you? Of course you should be willing to do that. 
It's not extraordinary, but that's something that you should be willing to do. For a good person, someone might possibly dare to die, he says. It's rare, but it happens. It happens all the time. That's not the big deal about the love. God's love is nothing like that. That's what he's saying. God's love is incomparable. God in the person of Jesus died for us while we were weak, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, while we were enemies. There is no illustration to illustrate such love is what he's saying. All we can do is tell you what happened. As people mocked Jesus, as people spat on Jesus, as people punched him, as people brutally crucified him, as people nailed those nails into his hands and his feet, Jesus was praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Can you describe that kind of love? The Holy Spirit can by pointing us to that event. And so he pours his love into our hearts as he turns our head to what happened on the cross. Do you see? Do you see why we spent all that time yesterday looking at the love of God last night? That was the Holy Spirit at work in his word. So firstly, the life of faith in the Son of God means enjoying the avalanche of blessings, including bathing in the love of God that the Holy Spirit is poured into our hearts by pointing us again to the cross of Christ. Secondly, faith in the Son of God will mean a life of glad obedience. A life of glad obedience. It only makes sense to live according to who we are, those justified by faith, united to Christ. So come back to Romans 6 now, just going ahead to Romans 6 again. Pick up the verses again. At verse 5, for if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see, as one united with Jesus, the rule of sin is broken. We're no longer enslaved to sin as our master. The old self that served sin was crucified with Jesus. So I'm no longer under the rule or power of sin as my master. And I can say no to sin. Furthermore, the penalty of sin is broken. The penalty being death. That's why we read in verse 9 of Romans 6. Verse 9 of Romans 6. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. That is, Jesus died the death that you and I deserve. But he also dealt with the death penalty by rising from the dead, never to die again. The penalty of death will never have mastery over Jesus. And if we are in Christ then we will rise again with Jesus and death will never have mastery over us either because we are united to him. So if our union with Christ deals with the rule of sin and the penalty of sin, then how are we to consider ourselves? Look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is how you consider yourself. This is how you think of yourself as dead to sin and alive to God. 
you are in Christ, so consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Do you know that song? Is it consider yourself? Whatever it is. Is that Oliver or what's the, where's it from? Is that from Oliver? There you go. Well, here's some new words. Consider yourself dead to sin. Consider yourself alive to God in Christ Jesus. Have that humming through your head. Because that's what it is. right? Consider yourself dead to sin. That's what you are. No, I'm not. I keep sinning. No, you are dead to sin. Because you're in Christ. But I don't feel it. Yes, you are. You're actually alive to God in Christ. You are in Christ. But I don't feel it. It doesn't matter whether you feel it or not. That's the reality. So if that's the reality, then how do you live? If our union with Christ deals with the rule and penalty of sin, and that's how you're to consider yourself, then therefore you are to live according to who you are. Romans 6 is not teaching us that we can live perfect lives, though, this side of heaven. It's not saying that you can be sinless. It does say that the rule of sin and the penalty of sin is dealt with, but it doesn't say that the presence of sin is dealt with. Clearly, sin is still present. What Romans 6 is saying, though, is that sin is an anomaly in the life of the believer. Sin doesn't make sense in the life of the believer. Dealing with sin begins with considering who we are, united with Christ. Being in Christ, dead to sin and alive to God. So live according to who you are. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. See, how do we deal with the presence of sin? By living according to who you are. In Christ, dead to sin, alive to God. Our spiritual state must become reality in our daily decisions with our bodies. I'm to use my body as an instrument of wickedness. No, sorry, of an instrument of righteousness. <laughs> Do delete that from the tape, won't you? An instrument of righteousness. The word instrument there is actually... Do you know the, actually the word instrument in the original is the word for weapon? Isn't that cool? My body is a weapon. You can say that, right? But I'm to use my body as a weapon for righteousness, not wickedness. I can use my hands as a weapon to steal or a weapon to help. I can use my tongue as a weapon to gossip or a weapon to encourage. I can use my eyes as a weapon to fill my head with lust or fill my head with Pure thoughts. Australia's best theologian again. Be careful little eyes what you see. Be careful little eyes what you see. There's a heaven up above. Who's father up above. In heaven. Who's looking down in love. Be careful little eyes what you see. On TV. See, your eyes are a weapon. You're going to use it 
for God because you are united to Christ? Or are you going to use it for something else? Faith in the Son of God means enjoying an avalanche of blessings and a life of glad obedience. And finally, faith in the Son of God will mean a life of love. We're going to skip over to chapter 12 now, chapter 12. And we're going to do this life of love in a couple of sections, intervening with a song. But we'll get to that. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, chapter 12, verse 1, to present your bodies, right? Remember, they were weapons. But this time, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In the original, it actually says your logical worship. Now, this is worship. Worship is not singing, per se. Worship is the whole of life. It's presenting your bodies consistently with who you are in Christ, holy and acceptable to God. Remember, justification means that I am accepted to, uh, to God because I'm in Christ. So I'm to live consistently with that acceptance by making my body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our logical worship. Worship is giving God your worth, giving God your bodies. Everything you do with your body is worship. Everything, not just Gathering in church on Sundays, that is worship. But that is not all of worship. Worship is everything you do with your life. It does include singing, but it's more than singing. It's all of life. How you drive to church is as much worship as what you do in church. In light of God's mercies, that will involve renewing your minds. That's why we spend a whole week digging into Scripture. Renewing our minds involves how we use our gifts in the first half of chapter 12 as well. But where I want to land is in verse 9 of chapter 12. It will involve a life of love. Look at verse 9 of chapter 12 of Romans. Let love be genuine. Pause there. Genuine love. It's actually a heading rather than a sentence. In the original, again, it says unhypocritical love. Unhypocritical love. This love that is the heading, that's going to be the heading for the rest of chapter 12, is not a fake love. This love is a real love. This love is the kind of love that, well, is never to be like an actor pretending. It's real. It's genuine love. And what does this genuine love look like? Verse 9. Let love be genuine. Unhypocritical love. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Just a few things to touch on here. Please note firstly that it is a mutual love. Right? It's love one another here. This is love one another with a brotherly, a family affection. Real feelings here for one's family. Those of us who come by God's grace from a family where there is genuine affection. That kind of affection is to be shared amongst all of God's family. Not just your biological family. If by God's grace you come from that kind of family. You know what that affection is like, don't you? 
you actually hug and you actually embrace and you might want to feel like you kill each other as kids, but you grow up and you really, really love each other. And you, you might even share your toothbrush from time to time with someone. Ugh. But because they're family, you might even do that. You know, it's, it's real affection, it's, it's love, and maybe I've gone too far, haven't I? But, but you get the vibe, don't you? It's genuine affectionate love. It's to be, and you outdo one another in showing honor. It, it's to be a practical love, verse 13, right? The, the kind of practical that contributing to the needs of the saints, seeking to show hospitality, open-handed generosity that is real, opening your homes, sharing your food, sharing your belongings, wanting to hang out in order to hang out, not just to get something out of that person. That hospitality word is a, a love of strangers, People who don't look like you, don't, don't speak the same language as you, they don't share the same values as you necessarily, but they do now in the Christian family. Do you know, being a Christian is the best passport in all the world. If you've ever visited a church in another place, in another country, where they don't speak the same language or you struggle with that, it's amazing how you actually feel like you're one with them. It's just incredible. We've, had, we've just had little glimpses of that with the Fijian partnership with, with others who have been to other places and, and our own brothers and sisters here from other countries. We struggle with our language. They struggle with their English. We're struggling to understand. But boy, we know we're one, don't we? We even eat two-minute noodles at 10.30 at night because we love one another. Good on you. That's practical, right? And it's a deeply felt love. Look there, verse 12, again, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. Right, it's a deeply felt love. They're real emotions. They are really heartfelt. And it's a forgiving love. Look at verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for his written vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We must meet curse with blessing. If you've ever been deeply hurt, this is hard, isn't it? And although we should desire justice, it's not our place to bring it about through personal vengeance. That's the role of God. It's a forgiving love. Esther Scott is a friend of ours, friend of my wife Jeanette in particular. They went through the same strand group at NTE as students years ago. Her maiden name was Staines, Esther Staines. I don't know whether you know the story of her family, but her family were missionaries in Orissa, India, serving those in poverty and especially leprosy. One day her father and brothers were out at a particular outpost and Hindu extremists came in, poured petrol over the car and burnt it. And Esther's father and brothers were found dead the next morning. You can hear about it, read about it. There's a movie that's recently come out called The Least of These that's doing the rounds. That's the story of Esther. 
Esther was once interviewed at this national conference at the national training event. And she was asked, how do you think about this? And she said, I just long one day to be able to go to those who killed my family to offer the forgiveness that God offers them. Where does that come from? Justification by faith. That's where it comes from. Not, not those words in terms of doctrinal precision. But it's the fruit of being in Christ and growing like our Savior, isn't it? Because like our Apostle Paul, Esther is crucified with Christ. She no longer lives, but Christ lives in her. And the life she lives in the body, she lives by faith in the Son of God who loved her and gave himself for her. We're going to sing about that now, and then we're going to look at another aspect of love in the remaining minutes after this song. You see why he's Australia's best theologian? Who went to... Was it the King's Kaleidoscope concert or something? Was there some big name band? who Citizens and Saints. Was it Citizens and Saints? Who was there? Who was there? Yeah. Now, I am told... I don't know if this is true. I'm told that there was a student who stood up in between the brackets. Is that right? And a student from Tasmania he was, and he stood up uh, between Citizens and Saints and someone else, and he got up, and he just shouted... 10, 9, 8. And the whole crowd erupted with, God is great. Uh, and I think Citizens and Saints came out and thought, what the heck is going on? Like, who is this? What's going on? So it's just amazing the opportunities that are there with our Colin. Now, in the remaining minutes, I want to turn our attention to one area of love. Remember, it's a life of love that is the ex expression of a life of faith to an area that is maybe of particular interest to us, given our stage of life, and that is the area of dating and marriage. I thought I had to keep you up somehow. <laughs> but it comes out of love in Ephesians chapter 5, which is a passage you well know. Ephesians chapter 5. But I want to begin at verse 1 to just show you, tie it with the theme, but it is there. Therefore, be imitators of God, verse 1, as beloved children, and walk, note, in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. You're hearing that again? A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, we walk in love because this is the Christ that we have our faith in, the one who gave himself up for us. And this, of course, has to apply to the whole area of marriage. God wants us to walk in love like Jesus, to love sacrificially like Jesus, to love at cost to yourself like Jesus. Every decision we make is ultimately about love. It's not about whether they are little decisions or big decisions, but whether they are loving decisions, because that is the life of faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. 
And that means turning my natural bent in on myself towards others. It's losing my interest in the interests of others. That is a costly love, and there is nowhere more clearly seen than in the desired relationship of marriage. And so can I turn my attention firstly to those of you who are wives or would-be wives? What does God's word say to you as you seek to walk in love? Chapter 5, verse 22. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The analogy, firstly note, is between Christ and his body, the church. We've got to remember that marriage is ultimately between Christ and his church. That's the ultimate reality when it comes to marriage. The eternal marriage between Christ and his church. There's a man by the name of Sam Albury who wrote that book, Is God Anti-Gay? And he once gave an address with this illustration from, wait for it, the movie Zoolander. I don't know whether you've seen Zoolander, but it's a very apt illustration that he used, which I'm simply pinching from him. If you've never seen them, uh, who's not seen the movie? Oh, blessings on you. You have pure weaponry eyes. <laughs> Derek Zoolander is a male model who has a very small IQ. He's not the sharpest knife in the drawer, nor the brightest bulb in the chandelier. He is very, very dim. And he wants to build, wait for it, a centre for kids who can't read good. And so someone unveils a small-scale model of what this centre, this building, could look like. And in the movie, Zoolander starts looking at this scaled model closely. And then in righteous anger, he says, what is this? A centre for ants? And he, builds, he picks it up and he throws it on the ground and smashes it everywhere. And everyone's perplexed. And then Zoolander says, how can we expect children to read if they can't even fit inside this building? That is, Zoolander treated the model as the reality. Sam Albury says so helpfully that when it comes to marriage, we're all Zoolanders. Because we treat the human marriage so often as the ultimate marriage. We tend to treat our human marriages as the ultimate reality instead of treating the marriage between Jesus and his church as the ultimate reality. And our human marriages are only ever models that point to the ultimate reality of the marriage between Jesus Christ and his church, his people. And as such, our human marriages are only ever temporary. And therefore, if you never marry in this life... You've not missed out. We're all going to be in the eternal marriage. And you have such wonderful privileges and opportunities if you are single and can stay single and stay single to do such good work for the Lord. Don't 
ever feel like you've missed out if you are single and remain single. But those of us who long to marry and will be married, and most of you probably will be statistically, don't ever treat your human marriages as the ultimate reality. Remember, the ultimate marriage is between Christ and his church. And it's only in that context that we can understand something of what he says to wives and what he says to husbands. See, if you are a wife or a would-be wife, what is God's word to you in the light of the fact that the ultimate marriage is between Christ and his church? Well, just as the church submits to Christ, so too wives should submit to their own husbands. And please note, submission is a voluntary thing. We voluntarily submit to Jesus. Jesus voluntarily submitted to his Father's will. He wasn't forced to. We saw that last night, didn't we, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's not unequal to his Father because he is fully God. And therefore, when he submits to his Father, he is not someone who is, someone who is unequal to him in any way whatsoever. He is simply in a particular position where he voluntarily and joyfully obeys his father's command. And that's how he loves his father, by submitting to him. Submission doesn't mean being a doormat. Submission doesn't mean being a pushover. Submission means joyfully putting yourself under the authority of someone who takes the initiative to love you. See, submitting to a police officer doesn't make you unequal to that police officer. Because you're fully human, just as that police officer is fully human. So if you choose to submit, you're doing so out of love, not as someone who is unequal to that person. And as a wife, it does not mean being a doormat or having, to ha having no opinion or being found only in the kitchen or being owned as his property. That's not what it's about. And furthermore, it's wrong to submit to your husband if he wants you to do anything that is clearly not pleasing to God in his word. What you do then is disobey him if he's wanting you to lie or he's wanting you to cheat. Or if he's... Then what you do is submit to the consequences of that, which means disobeying what he is saying and seeking to live a life that is pleasing to God in the end and longing for reconciliation down the track somewhere. Can I say that if you feel that this is your situation, where you have to submit to someone who is clearly not wanting to please God and not wanting you to please God, then do talk to someone about that, won't you? Right, voluntary submission means willingly honouring those in authority with you. And in the case of marriage, is for the wife to voluntarily, willingly honour your husband as God's appointed head over you and rejoicing in his initiative to serve you just like Jesus did with his father as his head. And submission also involves respect. See verse 33, come down to the end of chapter 5. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It involves respect. There's a great book, which title I've forgotten. My dear wife, Jeanette, what, what's it called? Love and Respect. Thank you. It's called Love and Respect. <laughs> and if you want to read a, a way into that article, there, uh, that book rather, there's an article that my beautiful wife wrote 
in the book that I've written, and I've, I've told you that it's her excerpt in the book that is worth the money, not the rest. It's what she's written that's really worth reading on this issue of submission. And good marriage vows for the wife will include her promise to respect her husband. So can I ask you, who are potential wives here, can you respect your potential husband in the Lord? Do you respect this person? Because that's how you make a decision regarding who to go out with in the end. You know, Respect is the seemingly biblical love language for men. Whereas women want to be cherished and adored, men want to be respected. Dear sisters, here are some possible questions to consider if someone asks you out. Firstly, are you ready for marriage? That is, are you progressing at your own life of love? The single you is what you will take into the married you. And if you're not working at it in your singleness, don't think that marriage is going to solve it. So you've got to work at it in your singleness now. Are you progressing in your own life of love, your own walk of love? And are you willing to be submissive? Can you respect his godly initiatives to love you by leading you in godliness? If you find it hard to respect this person, it's probably going to be very trying to submit to this person. Can you respect his desire and attempt to do so, even if he doesn't quite do it the way that you want him to do it? He doesn't pick exactly the right colour that you would love that would match the colour of your eyes. It's just off by a degree of pinkness or something. Are you willing to respect that desire? Secondly, questions about him, right? Is he a Christian if you are a Christian? Does it make sense to date a non-Christian if you are a Christian? I don't know what your situations are. I know some of your situations, but I need to tell you now, if, if you are dating someone who is not a Christian and you are a Christian... It just doesn't make sense, does it? Because you are living for Jesus as number one and he or she is not living for him as number one. And how can you possibly live together possibly when your very lifeblood comes from different sources? And in the end, it's a sin to marry an unbeliever if you can voluntarily choose not to. So this is the time to break off. Resolve to break up now. But if he is the kind of person that you think is worth pursuing and he has pursued you, then ask the question, does he have the same theological trajectory as you, the same ministry trajectory as you? Is he heading in the same direction? Because it, it, you're going to pull at different places. You've got to have the same theological convictions as well. I can't tell you the number of people who have broken up because they really have had different emphases in their theological thinking. I know a couple who actually broke up their engagement because they had different theological views on how men and women were to relate in ministry according to the scriptures. And it was a right breakup because that's too important when it comes to ministry down the track. 
Can you respect him? Do you respect him enough to submit to his loving initiatives? See, they're the kinds of things you need to think through if you are a would-be wife. Well, if you thought that that was challenging, husbands, it's your turn. (laughs) Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. See, if you are a husband or a would-be husband, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And like Jesus, we are to move heaven and earth and hell to lay down our lives for her. And if that means dying for her, you're not Superman. You're just doing your job. That's what it means to be a husband And if you're not up for that, don't ask anyone out. Stay single. Love our sisters by not asking them out if you're not prepared to do anything like that. If you have no desire to do this, then don't even contemplate dating someone. At this stage of your lives, dating someone is a trajectory to marriage. It's not just hanging out. You're not kicking tires around, you know, at a used car sales yard or something like that. Those days are over, you know. That happened after infants, right? It's just during infants, that's when it happens, right? Now, you're in marriage country. And if by God's grace you do become a husband, oh brother, what could this mean in practice for you? Firstly, You are to value her as your equal, even though you may be her head. She is your co-heir in Christ. You are to value her as your equal. Secondly, you are to cherish your wife. You are to help her to feel loved. Not just love her, but help her feel loved. Ask her what makes her feel loved. And you could be surprised. It could be as simple as putting the toilet seat down. Men... That's a good thing to do now, no matter when. (laughs) Thirdly, try and make submission a joy for her. A real joy for her. Now, darling, please let me change the nappies. Oh, yes. (laughs) That's submission, isn't it? Isn't that right? Oh, please, please let me do all the shopping this time around. Oh, be my guest. (laughs) That's submission, right? And you're helping her submit, making it a joy for her. Oh, how about I turn the state of origin off and watch Pride and Prejudice with you? (laughs) Oh, please, that would be wonderful. Are you willing to do that, guys? You up for that, guys? Oh, some of you are going, no, that's too far. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. But that's the kind of initiative we're talking about. They're just little things, aren't they? But there's a million little things that actually help you lay down your life for your wife. That's the potential kind of thing that we're talking about here. This all means sacrifice on your part. 
fourthly, take the initiative to plan how you could nourish her spiritually and nourish her emotionally, nourish her physically. Now, how can you read the Bible and pray with her? It will mean sacrifice on your part. And don't even think about asking someone out unless you're prepared to do these things at great cost to yourself. So again, brothers, similar questions to you if you are thinking about asking someone out. Are you ready for marriage? Are you progressing in your own life of love? The single you is what you'll take into the married you. If you're not working at it now, you won't work at it then. Are you willing to lay down your life for her, for better or for worse, or for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others until you are parted by death or until Jesus returns? Those promises are promises that you prepare for. They're not just glibly said up the front. And just because they're repeated, because they're words that might be hard to memorize, and the, the minister says it, they're, they're not small words. If you are preparing for marriage, and I know some of you are, not that I'm looking anywhere in particular, <laughs> just ponder that. I know a couple got married. Within a week, the wife contracted some kind of virus and she became basically disabled within a fortnight. In sickness and in health. I know another couple where one of the spouses has been dealing with emotional health issues. A particular psychological situation which has made life unbearable for the entire family. It's a chemical thing. But the spouse who is not affected by those challenges has just remained faithful day in, day out. Year in, year out. You up for that? It can happen. This is what it means to walk in love in marriage. How I date should reflect how I live my whole life of faith in the Son of God. And part and parcel of that, of course, is purity in that dating stage. Absolute purity. Now, I'm not seeking to be boastful in saying this. I just want to show you the, the desire that my dear wife Jeanette and I sought not to kiss on the lips until our wedding day because we knew that it would be terrifically hard if we'd done that. And for me in particular, because I had been married before and I understood what that could lead to. Now, I don't say that to boast. Trust me. It was hard work. But we knew the stakes were high for us. And for me in particular in my role and Jeanette in her role because we were staff workers here. In fact, because of our roles, my board had to know everything about our relationship. So it was on the agenda every time they had a board meeting. Can you believe it? <laughs> How's Richard's life life going? You know? So at the point we got engaged, they had to tell the whole staff team we can finally get rid of this agenda item. You know, <laughs> We had to go to that length of transparency because of the role that I exercised. 
I hope you hear, this is not something that we take lightly. Because it's all about living a life that is consistent with my justification. You see, this is all the fruit of justification. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Jesus Christ lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. He gave himself for me. Faith in the Son of God means a life bathing in an avalanche of blessings, a life of glad obedience, and a life of love. That's why we can sing. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul. My life, my all. Let's pray together. We thank you, dear Father, that in Christ there is no condemnation. That you have declared us to have met your standards because of what Jesus has done. We pray that we will live lives of faith in the Son of God by giving him our all. And Father, we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's stand and sing. I think, oh no, we're going to pray first, are we? No, we're going to pray. Hi, I'm Elise, and I'm a first-year pre-med student, and I've got the privilege of praying for us this evening. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God who is perfectly righteous, just, and merciful. You are faithful to your promises, you judge evil justly, and you loved us and sent your only Son for us. Thank you that by your grace, we, undeserving sinners, can be found in Christ, sharing in his death and in his life. We pray that you help us to find our security and satisfaction in Christ alone, not in the things of this world which can never satisfy. Help us to live lives characterised by true faith in Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us, who we were crucified with and who, by your great power and mercy, we will be raised with. Thank you for the indescribable, incomparable love you have shown for us ultimately displayed when you sent your perfect son to die for our sins. May true faith in your son shape our whole lives. Thank you for the rich blessings you give us, peace with you, the hope of your glory, and joy in our suffering. We pray that you will help us to live out our freedom from sin in joyful obedience to you, as we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to you in Christ. Please help us to be characterised by genuine, practical and forgiving love as we follow the example of Christ.
Thank you for the gift of marriage and for the way it points us to Christ's union with the church. We pray that you will give us a right understanding of marriage as a model of a far greater reality. We give thanks for the graduated students who have joined us tonight and for the ways they've been able to encourage us. Thank you for the ways you have grown them during their time at university. We pray that you will give them guidance as they look to the future beyond uni and how they can best serve you there. Please show them how to use what they've learned from Uni Bible Group in order to honour you wherever you have placed them. Please help us all in all that we do to live lives shaped by the cross of Christ. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.